I'll be preaching this morning from verses uh, 35 through to the end of the chapter, but to keep it in its proper context, I will read the, the entire um, entirety of, of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but one among you, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, the one who comes after me, the, a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. We have no cause for grief because Jesus died to win us and the Father's hand is guiding us home. So I pray that uh, that, that would be the, the echo of your heart, that, that you just... That, that these truths would just resound in your heart. And, and just think about these things through the week, about who we are in Christ. As we, we turn to, to the word of the Lord, again, I'll be preaching from, from John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. Now, a couple weeks ago, we, we started the book of John. We're going to be working through by God's grace, the, the entire uh, gospel according to John together over, over the coming probably several months, at least, at least I'd say nine months. But this morning, I, I really want us to think about and the Apostle John and the Holy Spirit-inspired Apostle John would have us think about Jesus calling his first disciples. So I've actually entitled this message, We Found Him, or actually... He found us. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever lost something that was important to you? Maybe it was your wallet or your cell phone or, or maybe even your wedding ring. How did you feel about it? How did you feel about during that time when, when you did not know what that, that lost, where that lost item was? And it was, it was probably a weight that, that over, overhang, overhung your, your whole thoughts until you either found it or entrusted the situation to the Lord. Well, Jesus told that the parable of the lost coin and the, and the woman who, who cleaned her whole house looking for a particular coin. 
Jesus also told the, the parable of the prodigal son, the, the son who had rebelled against his father and, and ran pursuing fleshly desires, pursuing sin. And then we read about how he, he came to his senses and how still while, while the son was a long way off, the father saw him and, and pulled up his robe and ran to meet his son. Many years ago, my, my little brother went missing, and, and I've actually I spoke to my, my brother and my parents, um, trying to, to remember all the, the details of, of what had happened, and they're a little bit foggy because it was so long ago, but from my recollection, my brother was about six years old, and uh, when he didn't turn up for, for a few hours, my, my parents began to worry. Now, this was a different time. There was, we, were, we, were, we felt safe, at least we had the... the the illusion of safety in our neighborhood that we could just go in and play at a neighbor's house without, without much, much, much thought or, or concern. But, uh, but when my, my, brother's, when my brother didn't turn up for, for a few hours, my parents began to worry. And then finally, after, after a significant amount of time, he, he showed up at home. He had been playing in one of the neighbor's basements, and, and they had had relatives staying with, with young kids, and, and the, the, the neighbors didn't even know that he was down there. But can you imagine the joy that my parents experienced when my brother came home? They were overjoyed. There were hugs and kisses. And he was about to get a major lecture. But for the time being, they were just relieved to have him back at home. And that's the situation that we're going to find ourselves in this morning. We're going to find how, how that the disciples were looking for something. They were looking for someone. But meanwhile, that someone was looking for them. Last week we saw the witness of John the Baptist, how John the Baptist was witnessing to Jesus Christ as God the Son. And this week we're going to pick up where we left off. Before John was, was through his, his words, pointing men to Jesus, and he's still doing that here today. He's pointing his own disciples to Jesus. So this morning we're going to see the call of Andrew and another disciple, as well as the call of Peter, of Philip, and of Nathaniel. So first of all, the call of Andrew and another disciple. That's in, in John 1, verses 35 to 40. So our passage begins here. It's the next day, and John the Baptist is standing there with two of his disciples. It's the day after John had declared, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, back in verse 29. Now this is part of a sequence of events, a period of, of several days that are linked together in John the Apostle's mind as he, as he tells us, this is the next day. It's going to continue the next day when, when Jesus goes to Galilee and calls Philip, and then the next day after that, when Jesus performs a miracle that is going to affirm the faith of his disciples, and that where he is going to, the few days after that, going to clear the temple. And this, these are affirmations of his power and also of his holiness and his authority. And we'll be looking at that in the coming weeks. But here in verse 35, here is John the Baptist with his, two, with his two disciples. We don't yet know 
who these disciples are. But John the Baptist again declares, Jesus is the Lamb of God. And although this time he didn't include the phrase, who takes away the sin of the world, the message was clear. We spoke about this last week, that the Lamb of God would have, would have been a clear picture to point these Jews towards the Messiah. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the one who forgives sin. Salvation is only found in the Lamb of God. So I pointed last week to how it pointed to the Passover lamb from Exodus 12 and even further back to Genesis 22, 8, where, where Abraham is going to sacrifice Isaac. And Isaac asks where the lamb is. And Abraham replies, God will provide a lamb. And we know that, that God stays Abraham's hand as he holds up the knife to kill his own son. And then, behold, there's a lamb caught in the thicket that, offers, that is offered as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. And we know that with Christ, the Father did not withhold the knife. We know that on the Son, the Father poured out all of his wrath in the place of his people. And although the disciples wouldn't quite get it yet. They will know. Paul would declare in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. To this point, they did not yet understand that the sacrificial system was pointing ahead to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the sinless Son of God. The reality would not become clear until three years later. At the cross. Turn for a moment, please, to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, it would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They were a picture. They were to point to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So Andrew and the unnamed disciple hear John's declaration and follow Jesus. But we need to stop there for a minute and examine specifically what is meant by the term disciple. Although it's going to come to refer to the, the 12 apostles, here it refers to a follower, one who received teaching from another. Now, humanly speaking, if one man's disciple was to leave and follow after another disciple, it would have been very disappointing. But here, John the Baptist rejoices because he knows that he is fulfilling his purpose. His mission is to point men to Jesus. He has taught his disciples well. 
So when he declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God, they'd leave him and become disciples of Jesus. I see a parallel here in the church. There are going to be people here who will leave this church to go and serve in other places, to serve as elders in other churches, to serve as missionaries in in other countries. Now, I'm not talking about people who leave because of, of sin and church discipline or people who leave because of unresolved issues. People who leave because God is calling them elsewhere. Humanly speaking, it would be disappointed when some of, of, our, of our best people, some of our most godly people, go and serve in another place. But if that happens, we need to praise God because it means we have done our job well. It means that we have trained and equipped those who would go and proclaim the good news, go and spread the gospel to shine the light of Jesus Christ in other places. People who are going to to follow Jesus in other places. So that's why John said in John 3.30, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. So John's disciples recognize who Jesus is, and they follow him. But when Jesus sees Andrew and this unnamed disciple following, he turns and asks them a question. He says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? It's a valid question. If you want to follow Jesus, it's a valid question for you too. What are you seeking? Many say that they want to follow Jesus but they do so for their reasons. We'll see this in John chapter 6. Some wanted to follow Jesus because he fed them. Even the disciples didn't really get it. They wanted to follow Jesus because they were looking for an earthly kingdom. Luke testifies in, in Luke 9, 57 and 58 that of his account in the gospel that, that later in Jesus' ministry as they're going along the road, Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Some say they want to follow Jesus in order to have a purpose for their lives. Some say they want to follow Jesus in order to help people with their material needs. Some people follow Jesus because they, or say they follow Jesus because they want their material needs met. Some want community, some want love, some want their sins forgiven. Now, all of these things are benefits of following Jesus. But there's only one legitimate cause, one legitimate reason for following Jesus. It's because only through Jesus can you have eternal life with God. Jesus Jesus did not come to fulfill our felt needs. Jesus came to die so that we could find life in him. Other people want to follow Jesus on their terms. Luke goes on in Luke 9, 59. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those who are at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we can only follow Jesus on his terms. If you do not come to Jesus 
with a heart of repentance, turning to follow him in faith, seeking to submit to him as Lord in every part of your life, then you haven't come to him at all. You are not following him if he is not the Lord of your life. So how did these first disciples respond? They say in in verse 38, Rabbi. Now this is the first of several occasions where John translates the Aramaic into Greek for his non-Jewish readers. Rabbi, he tells us, means teacher. Now this was the, the customary way that disciples would address their teacher. It's a good start, but it's only a start. Many people call Jesus teacher but they didn't learn from him, let alone love him, worship him, and submit to him. The scribes and the Pharisees also called him teacher, but they hated him. The rich young ruler in Luke 18, 18 referred to him as good teacher, but walked away from him. Beloved, nothing has really changed. Many refer to Jesus as a good teacher, but they refuse to submit to him or to submit to his teaching. Jesus rebuked the rich young ruler by saying there is none good but God. Now that's true even in the wider wider sense of the term good. If Jesus is not who he said he is, if he is not truly the Lord and must be submitted to, then he couldn't be good. Either he is the Lord or he is a liar or a lunatic. But we who are here, who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are submitting to Jesus as our Lord, know that the claims that he makes about himself are true. The claims that John the Baptist make about him are true. The claims that John the Apostle make of him are also true. So we, like those first disciples, follow him, not just as teacher, but as Lord. So these disciples... When, when, when Jesus asked them, what are, what are they seeking? What are they seeking? Thus far, they were seeking teaching. Before they had sought teaching from John, now they're seeking it from Jesus. And so they answered Jesus with a question, what, or rather, where are you staying? Where are you staying? It really, at first glance, it seems like an odd response. First of all, to answer a question with a question But why like this? It doesn't seem to be a legitimate response. It's likely part of their request for teaching. Leon Leon Morris explains that their words probably imply that what they wanted from him could not be settled in a few minutes just by the wayside. So we see from the context, Jesus tells them, come and see. Come and see. This was an invitation that would affect their eternity. They stayed with him all that day because it was the 10th hour. Now here in in Western culture today, we consider the next day and the first hour to start at midnight. But according to the Jewish reckoning of the time, the next day started at at sunset and the first hour began at sunrise. So this would have been, they would have connected with Jesus at roughly four o'clock in the afternoon. So this probably means that they actually stayed with Jesus that evening, and then the rest of the next day. Now we find out in verse 40 that one of the disciples is named Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. 
Now, the other still isn't named, although traditionally it's thought to have been the Apostle John. And although it's conjecture, this does fit given the fact that throughout this gospel and in his epistles, John does not actually give his own name. Out of probably humility, he refers to himself in the, in the second, rather in the third person, the disciple whom Jesus loved, but he doesn't give his own name. Then we read in verse 41 that the first thing that Andrew did was go and find his brother. So let's, let's examine the call of Peter in verses 41 and 42. Andrew's just spent a day with Jesus. First he had the testimony of John the Baptist, and now he had the testimony of Jesus. He had heard from Jesus personally, and he was convinced. He knew who Jesus was. So the first thing he did is he went and found his brother and told him, we have found the Messiah. Calvin explains that the circumstance of Andrew immediately bringing his brother expresses the nature of faith, which does not conceal or quench the light, but rather spreads it in every direction. And Calvin goes on, Woe to our indolence or laziness, therefore, if we do not, after having been fully enlightened, endeavor to make others partakers of the same grace. So if you have truly been enlightened by Jesus Christ, you will go and spread that light. You can probably relate to this personally. When you were first saved, what did you do? You went and you proclaimed the gospel to everyone who would listen and even many people who wouldn't listen. Brothers and sisters, we have been given the light of Christ. Don't forget the zeal that you first had when you came to Jesus Christ. That out of love for God and love for the lost, you proclaimed the gospel widely, widely, and left God to bring fruit. We don't hide our light under a, under a basket, but we put it on a stand to give light to all who are in the house. We live in a dark world, and God has called us to shine the light of Christ. He has placed you in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in this church, to shine the light of Christ. So wherever God has placed you, he has sent you as his ambassador to bring the message of salvation. So Andrew immediately went and told his brother, we have found the Messiah. Now, it's difficult for us in this culture to understand the weight of the statement. We, we live separated by, by thousands of miles and 2,000 years from these events. But remember that, that Jesus came to an, an oppressed people, an occupied people. Israel has been oppressed throughout their history. To this point, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks had all occupied the Promised Land. Now it was the Romans' turn. They invaded in, in 63 base in BC, and they had trampled Jerusalem, the holy city, with their pagan influence. The time was ripe for a deliverer. Messiah is the Hebrew word, and Christ is the Greek word for anointed one. 
But this isn't any anointed one. This is Jesus Christ. This is the anointed one. The one that they had been looking for ever since their first occupation. The one who would deliver them. Jesus didn't come under the Assyrian occupation, the Babylonian occupation, the Persian occupation, or the Greek occupation. He chose now to deliver his people. So imagine what it would have been like to live as a Jew in occupied Israel. Roman soldiers marching through the streets, banners flying in the breeze. You keep your head down so as not to draw attention to yourself. You have few rights. You're an outcast in your own land. But far worse than any of that is the fact that, 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 that those who are occupying your country are pagans. Everything about them is a stench to your nostrils. They, they command, demand worship of their king, of their Caesar, as divine. But then, like a bolt out of the blue, the Messiah comes, your deliverer. The one who has been promised and prophesied for thousands of years has finally arrived. All of Israel knew the promise that the Lord had made to King David in 2 Samuel 7. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Now David wrote of the Messiah in Psalm 110 verses 1 and 2. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. So the Messiah is the fulfillment of their long-held expectations. He is the anointed one of God. He would come and free his people. He would come to be their savior and their king. But the problem is, it'll soon become apparent that they didn't really realize what these things meant. They were thinking nationalistically. They were thinking of an earthly kingdom. They were thinking that, that the Messiah would come to deliver them from their Roman captors. But the Messiah was coming to deliver them from a far more dangerous and far more heinous captor, uh, captor than any Roman could ever be. The Messiah was coming to, to deliver them from their captivity to sin. So brothers and sisters, we too are waiting for the Messiah. We are waiting for the return of Jesus Christ. He has already come. If you are in Christ, he has already set you free from your captivity to sin. But we are waiting for his return. We are waiting for the time when he will, will bring in the new heavens and the new earth. When he comes to call his people home. So then Peter, Jesus says to Peter in verse 42, You are Simon, the son of John. You should be called Cephas, which means Peter. So again, John is translating the Aramaic to the Greek. Now in Matthew chapter 16, which, is, which includes the, the famous uh, 
declaration of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus confers that name on the name Peter on him. But then immediately or soon after that, when Jesus told the disciples that he would suffer, that the Messiah would suffer and die and be raised on the third day, Peter rebuked Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Jesus turned to Peter and rebuked him in the harshest terms, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter was, was betraying the fact that he was looking for an earthly kingdom. He thought that the Messiah was going to set up an earthly kingdom on earth. He did not understand the gospel yet. And he won't fully understand it until the resurrection. And as he is reinstated, we won't get to that for probably nine or ten months, but in John chapter 21, where after Peter denies Christ, all through those three years, Peter still didn't get it. But it wasn't until the resurrection where he understands what all of this really meant. Now, you may have noticed from your Bible study that this account of the call of these first disciples is significantly different from the one that you find in the, in the synoptic gospels, particularly in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. So if you just turn with me for a moment, and I just want to, want to discuss this. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now the account is, is the same in, Mar in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. But why is John's account so different here? Some liberal theologians argue that this discrepancy means that the Bible contradicts itself. However, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you have the, the presupposition, you accept on faith, that the Bible never contradicts itself. That the Bible is the authoritative, inerrant word of God. So we accept on faith that there is another explanation, and there is. These were actually two separate events. Leon Morris explains that the first was an initial call to discipleship, where the other is a call to apostleship. You can actually see that from the context. When you consider John's, John's purpose or John's intention in writing is to show the, 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 the godhood and the manhood of Jesus Christ. John's showing the, the, the relationship as, as a teacher and a, and a disciple. 
He has a different intention here than the writers of the Synoptic Gospels have. Martin Luther says it like this, John's theme is not the calling of apostles into office, it is their congenial association with Jesus Christ. So in other words, John is focused on the relationship between Christ, the Son of God, and his disciples. So they're looking at at two different events, and that explains the, the, the difference. But again, if you don't believe that the Bible is inerrant, you will never accept that because you need to accept it on faith. On faith. So now let's continue with, with verse 43 and the, the, the call of Philip. Jesus' call of Philip. The next day, Jesus, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Follow me. Now, as we saw with the call to the first disciples and, then to, and also with their call to apostleship in Mark 1, this call is also a command. And it comes at the initiative of Jesus. This is what is often referred to as the effectual call for those to be, who become disciples. It is, it is effective to produce its intended result. This is different from the universal call to all sinners to repent and come to Christ. Jesus Jesus will tell the disciples in John 15, 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide. So this effectual call is true of all disciples, not just those first disciples, but it is also true of disciples like Paul in Acts chapter 9. Paul was headed for Damascus to persecute Christians. And then Jesus appeared to him and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So immediately Paul is turned from a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church by the call and command of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul describes this in Galatians 1.15. He says, God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. So this call was also effectual for the Apostle Paul. And brothers and sisters, that is how the call works for us as well. The effectual call is tied to election. This call is irresistible, and with it comes the faith to believe and the power to respond. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 to 24. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but weak preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So to those who are called, the gospel is power. It's power, the power of God, and it's the wisdom God of God unto salvation. And also in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. 
And you who are alive in your trespass, so you who are dead rather in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we were dead in our sins and trespasses, but God has made us alive. We were dead, just as dead as Lazarus in the tomb, but God made us alive. Spurgeon used this analogy for, a, for the effectual call. He said, the effectual call of grace is precisely similar. The sinner is dead in sin. He is not only in sin, but dead in sin without any power whatsoever to give himself the, the life of grace. Sovereign mercy comes, and there lies this unconscious, lifeless mass of sin. Sovereign grace cries, either by the minister or else directly, without any agency, by the Spirit of God, come forth, and that man lives. Does he contribute anything to his life? Not he. His life is given solely by God. He was dead, absolutely dead, rotten in his sin. The life is given when the call comes, and in obedience to the call, the sinner comes forth from the grave of his lust and begins to live a new life, even the life eternal, which Christ gives to his sheep. So, brothers and sisters, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God called us. God called us from death to life. Not just physical death. That would have been easy. But from spiritual death, God turned us from rebels, from enemies of, of the cross, enemies of Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He has made us alive in Christ. In verse 44, we see that Philip was from Bethsaida, the same city as Andrew and Philip. Now, Bethsaida is on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and it actually means house of fishing. So it's really no wonder that these first disciples that were called by Jesus, Jesus were actually fishermen. But now let's look at verses 45 to 51, the call of Nathanael. Philip responds to the good news in a similar manner to Andrew. In verse 45, he went and found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets spoke, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now the law and the prophets refers to the Old Testament scriptures in their entirety. And the Old Testament bears witness about Jesus because the Old Testament is about Jesus. It all points to him. Jesus said in John 5, verses 45 to 47, Do you not think that I will accuse you to the Father? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. For if you do not believe his writings, how you believe my words? He also taught this to two disciples on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion and the resurrection. In Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Now, even though Jesus was from Bethlehem, he was considered to be from Nazareth because that's where Joseph, his adopted father, was from. And that's where they returned to raise Jesus after they had fled to Egypt because of, the, because of, of Herod. Now, we don't know why, but for some reason, Nazareth, the people from Nazareth were scorned. And Nathaniel responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? D.A. Carson says that the fact that Jesus was reared in Nazareth not only obscured his origins in Bethlehem from those who did not search very far, but also reflected the self-abasement of the man from heaven. So he was known as Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Nazarene, not Jesus the Bethlehemite, with all the royal Davidic overtones that that would have provided. So Philip res responds to this rebuff with, with simply, come and see. Come and see for yourself with, if anything good can really come from Nazareth. F.F. Bruce says that honest inquiry is a sovereign cure for prejudice. Nazareth might be all that Nathaniel thought. Nazareth might be all that Nathaniel thought, but there is an exception to prove every rule, and what an exception these young men had found. Not just something good, but the Holy One of God, God Himself. So in verse 47, Jesus sees Nathanael approaching and says, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no receipt. Now, Jesus isn't referring to him here as a true Israelite in the sense of, of being a true follower of Jesus Christ, as the NIV translates it, but the emphasis on the fact that Nathanael is free of deceit. Nathaniel wasn't hiding his speculation as to who Jesus really was. He was doubting. And then Jesus says to him, he says to him, sorry, I just lost my place. He says to him, because, he says, while you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. While you were still under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, although he was his in his incarnation, the, the omniscience of Jesus Christ was veiled, here we're getting a glimpse. We're getting a glimpse that, that, that Jesus really is the omniscient God the Son. And so Nathaniel responds. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. So that one event was another witness the omniscience of Jesus here was a witness to it was a witness to the identity of Jesus Christ as God the Son. So Jesus answers him in verses 50 and 51, because I said to you I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, truly truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of man. Now, this, this phrase, truly, truly, is used 25 times in John's Gospel. It affirms the authority of the announcement that is to follow. But the you here switches to the plural. Jesus is not just addressing Nathaniel, but Philip, and probably Andrew, Peter, and the unnamed disciple as well. 
Now this description of angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man is an obvious reference to Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28.12. We read that, that Jacob had a dream, and behold, a ladder was set on earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So Jesus will provide greater access to God than the heavenly ladder that Jacob saw. And this heavenly ladder actually pointed to Jesus. It was a type that would point to the coming sinless Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Hebrews 10, 19, and 20, we read, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So the way that Jesus Christ would provide was himself. We'll read in John chapter 10 how Jesus is not only the lamb, but he's also the shepherd, and he's also the sheep gate, the one by whom we enter into eternal life. And then finally, Jesus refers to himself here as the Son of Man. Now, this is the first time that he refers to himself in this way, it's, it, but it's actually one of his, his favorite ways of doing so. He actually calls himself the Son of Man in, in over 80 times in the Gospels and 12 times here in John's Gospel. Merrill Tenney explains that it refers to the incarnate Christ as representative of humanity before God and the representative of deity in human life. So as God the Son, he is representing us as God. As the Son of Man, he is representing us before God. He is our advocate He is the one through whom we have access to the Father. He is the archetypical man. He is the second Adam, the greatest man of all time. He is the glory of God in human flesh. Now, each of the disciples came to believe that. They were looking for the Messiah, but the Messiah was also looking for them. This is yet another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that points to Jesus. Look at the cover of your bulletin. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 and 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. So Jesus is the good shepherd. He is God searching out his sheep. And if you are here this morning as a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, you are here because God has sought you out. You are here because God has called you. Because God has raised you from deadness to sin. You are here because God has laid down his life for you. So has Jesus called you? Is Jesus calling you here this morning, at this very moment? Is he calling you from 
death from sin? Is he calling you into his life?